So at the very beginning of the pandemic, if you can even remember that far back, it seems like it was a long time ago, and this just kind of keeps rolling on and on and on. But if you remember back to the beginning, um, I was able to get a trick quick, a quick trip down to New Jersey where my son and his wife and their 18-month-old daughter lived at the time. Now, it was when the fear of being quarantined was gripping Monmouth County and people were flooding to Wegmans, Wegmans a grocery store, right, to buy the necessities. The problem was, so was everyone else. Now, this Wegmans, I've only been to a couple in my lifetime, but this particular Wegmans seems to be one of their bigger stores. You know, the, the meat aisle just goes on and on and on. But alas, it was empty. I mean empty. No chicken, no pork, no beef. Not even a liver or gizzard was to be found. Okay. So next, we went to the frozen food aisle. Depleted, of course, except for a few cauliflower crust pizzas that, you know, nobody really wanted. And if you like those, I'm sorry <laughs> to have offended you. But, uh, you know, and there were some frozen veggies, you know, the likes of cubed mixed vegetables and, of course, peas. And the canned food aisle was no better. By now... There were rationed cans of black beans, cannellini beans, tomato sauce, spaghetti sauce, and of course, canned peas. So we took as much as we were allotted. The milk and bread aisle, repeat. You would have thought that they were predicting a six-foot snowstorm. But no snow was in the forecast just a looming quarantine hanging over everyone's head. And need I say anything about cleanser and toilet paper? <laughs> we all know how that turned out. But we made out just fine, and we had food for the week, combined with what they had at home, and no one starved. We all ate. Food was scarce. And the panic mentality didn't help matters. Rather than relax into the care and share mode for one another, it became every human for his or herself. Now, I'm glad that we've now settled into some sort of semblance of life and abundance again, but I'm sad to think of how low we sank into the fear of scarcity. Let us now listen to a story of the feeding of the 5,000, a very large crowd from the Gospel of John, the sixth chapter. After Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias, or after this, a crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we going to buy bread for these people to eat? 
He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, six months, six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to even get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they among so many people? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in the place, so they sat down, about 5,000 in all. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So all the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, gather up the fragments left over so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left those by who had eaten, they filled 12 baskets. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. When Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, the disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across to the sea, the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sand and coming near the boat, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they wanted to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the land toward which they were going. Amen. Well, it looks to me like the disciples, too, initially were operating out of the scarcity mode. All they saw was an ocean of people and meager provisions. So they were curiously trying to compute the cost of feeding so many people. They needed to figure out the dilemma that Jesus posed to them. Where are we to get food for these people to eat? Well, Philip didn't need to consult anyone to compute the cost to feed those 5,000 very hungry people on the side of the mountain by the Sea of Tiberias. He went right into the computing mode and determined why six months' wages wouldn't even be close to buying enough food and bread for these people. All Philip knew was that they needed a lot of bread, and he had a shortage of shekels in his robe. Then Simon Peter's brother Andrew noticed there was a boy who had five barley loaves and two fish. Now you might think that he would trust that Jesus would come through. Yet he too has questions for Jesus. What good are only five loaves and two fish that this little boy has? 
It just didn't compute in Andrew's mind how they could possibly feed all of these people with so very little. The feeding of the 5,000 is one of the most familiar and beloved stories that is recorded actually in all four Gospels. Now, John's Gospel was the last to be recorded, and it's different than the other Gospels on a couple of levels. In John, Jesus tells no discernible parables like he does in the other Gospels, and he talks extensively about himself making the famous I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep, and so forth. And also, John refers to Jesus' miracles as miraculous signs, conferring really a very high Christology on Jesus, that Jesus is the risen Christ in this gospel, the Son of God. You know that from the beginning. It makes reading John's gospel actually quite poetic and beautiful, and it elevates Jesus to a much greater divinity than the other gospels. So in our reading today, John has linked two Galilean miracle stories together. They are two stories that speak to our deepest human needs, our need for food and our need for protection from harm. Now, if we were Abraham Maslow, remember him? We would immediately identify these needs at the base of his hierarchy of human needs. Physiological and then safety. In his hierarchy, one needs to be grounded before one can become an individuated adult. In other words, basic needs need to be met. You can't determine your life's course when you're so starved and only can think about from where and when your next meal will come. John, Andrew, and Philip, or Philip, didn't have Maslow or his hierarchical chart. They didn't have a clue about modern psychology. They just knew that people had needs and that Jesus could fulfill those needs if he so chose to, and of course he did. The disciple and 5,000 people were able to witness God's almighty power through Jesus Christ, through loaves and fish. Enough for all. And I don't know if you caught that, but there were 12 baskets of leftovers. It was Desmond Tutu who said, when people were hungry, Jesus didn't say, now is that political or social? He said, I feed you, because the good news to a hungry person is bread. Jesus met the 5,000 exactly where they were. They were tired, they were hungry, and it didn't matter who was on the side of that hill that day. He told them to sit down, and he fed them real food, fish and bread. It wasn't rocket science or a social or political statement. It was simply filling a need. There was an abundance of food for all. 
in a daily meditation, actually this week, from the Society of St. John the Evangelist, entitled, Brother, Give Us a Word. Brother Jim said, All of us, no matter who we are, or what our lot is in life, are welcome at the table. Be assured that whether you're in the front of the line or at the end, there is abundance and we will all be fed. Well, I wish more folks at Wegmans had had this knowledge and trust that all would be fed. So today I want to think with you about abundance. What is it? And what does it mean for your living? Because abundance is just not a cornucopia filled to the brim with ripe vegetables like we like to imagine and celebrate at Thanksgiving. It's so much more than that. Abundance. More than enough, plentiful amount, enriched supply, copious quantity, seeing endless potential and possibility. This is how abundance is described normally. When we think about abundance, perhaps we think about having it all and then some. A house here, in addition to a second home there. Friends, friends, way too many to count on ten fingers. A fridge upstairs and an additional freezer downstairs. A storage bin filled with the items we can't fill in our homes. I think you would call all of this an abundance of goods. And perhaps perhaps even abundant life. Then we can have abundant gardens and markets filled with an abundance of food that is fresh and so inviting. It's all good. You might even say that you're living the good life when you are surrounded by plenty of necessities and many accoutrement. But we also need to understand that abundance is not the more I have, the better. It's far from that. There's a danger to a mindset that claims the more is better. This is what we saw when the paper product aisles, the cleanser aisles, and meat counters were depleted. People acted out of scarcity and hoarded such products so that their living could be secure and perhaps abundant within the structure and confines of the pandemic lockdown. The more TP I have stocked up, the better off I will be. It skewed our thinking and what abundant living really means. How does one live a life of abundance when in the midst of trauma, pain, loss, suffering. What will it take from us to adopt an abundance mindset that honors God and our souls, not a scarcity mindset that is self-focused and harmful to others? Filling your life with things is not going to relieve the sting that life sometimes offers. Many have tried, but are still empty. In his poem, The Wild Geese, poet and author Wendell Berry ends his poem with this line. 
What we have is here. What we have is here. He speaks of riding a horseback on a Sunday morning, noticing everything from the fields to the names of those who went west, and those names whose, whose names grace the stones of a grave, from opening a persimmon seed to find the tree that stands in promise geese overhead and then the sky closes and the geese disappear he asserts that what we need is here what we have all we have is right before us God provides so much for us to see and experience right here right before our very eyes you know remember Poet Emily Dickinson lived much of her life in the small little realm. Her hub of existence was tiny. And then she wrote. She left an abundant legacy of beautiful poems through her body of work, <coughs> even in the midst of her isolation. The abundance that we can glean from this passage is growth and acceptance of what you have even when you might be at a crossroads or experiencing loss or pain. It is being present to the abundance of things, the beauty, the people in front of you, and then appreciating that moment for what it is and how it adds benediction to your life. Aaron Copeland was moved and inspired to write an opera in 1952 entitled The Tender Land after he had seen photos by Walker Evans. Walker Evans documented the Great Depre Depression in poignant and heartbreaking black and white photography similar to Dorothea Lange. Now, Lange's mother, I'm sure you would recognize if you saw it, the image of migrant mother is black and white photo of a woman flanked by her two children. So too, Walker photographed despondent adults with empty eyes, dilapidated wooden porches, the blank faces of children, and the desperate looks of the, of the migrant workers. Evans depicted the horrors of the depression that it particularly had on men and women who were downcast and had practically nothing. Copeland saw these photos and was stirred and motivated by them to compose his opera, The Tender Land. The Tender Land was set in the Midwest in the, in the, 18, in the 1930s. Um, the farmland folks and the migrant workers where they were hit the hardest. Yet the Moss family of the opera finds great thanksgiving for the spring harvest in the middle of their adversities. They had had an abundant spring harvest and are living, working, growing, loving, and sharing all of this with their friends. They were thankful for what work they had, which wasn't much, and for being able to share the plentiful crops with their neighbors. This, my friends, is grace and gratitude. The most stirring piece from this opera is the promise of living. 
where the Moss family prays. We plant each row with seeds of grain, and Providence sends us the sun and the rain. By lending a hand, by lending an arm, bring out the blessing of harvest. Give thanks there was sunshine. Give thanks there was rain. Give thanks we have hands to deliver the grain. Oh, let us be joyful. Oh, let us be grateful to the Lord for his blessing. Amidst their lives of scarce resources and desolate times, they were able to live abundantly because they were grateful. Grateful for the simple things. And they gave all the glory to God. Let their prayer be our prayer to this day. 